You are Locked On Bucks, your daily podcast on the Milwaukee Bucks, part of the Locked On Podcast Network. Your team every day. Backs him down. Giannis into the lane. Giannis spinning. Welcome to Locked on Bucks. I'm Eric Name, Milwaukee Bucks reporter at ESPN Milwaukee. Joining me, as always, is my good friend and the founder of Brew Hoop, Frank Madden. Frank, how you doing? I'm good. I uh, I guess I'm I'm jealous that that you mentioned on the Friday pod that it would have been a good time to have both of us so we could have talked about the game, game one. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I was a bit sad. I, I missed that. But um, yeah, I, I guess I would just echo what what you, you you said about game one what an incredible game and um it, it I think a lot of us were frustrated by it because of the chance to have a competitive finals seemingly go out the window um because I, as I tweeted after the game I mean I'm not a Cavs fan I'm I'm a Bucks fan but yet I I felt more frustrated by that game than I think any non-Bucks game all year and uh yeah that was just tough and, and obviously we're, we're recording this before game two so we'll see if the Cavs maybe have a little bit of fight left in them to maybe, uh, who knows, maybe the Warriors again sort of just sort of go back into coast mode after winning a game. But, um, man, that would have been, I think, great for the series if, uh, if they had won game one. And, yeah. I, by the way, I'm, I'm okay with you calling people losers who are com- nice. complaining about LeBron. <laughs> nice. Okay, good. I mean, and I – see, unlike you, since I'm older than you, um, I, I watched all the, the Bulls championships – of the of the 90s growing up and I, w- I was a Bulls fan in those games I, w- I was basically a playoff Bulls fan um because the Bucks were never in the playoffs and then so basically I would that's fair root for the Bucks in the regular season root for the Spurs since David Robinson was my favorite player and then in the finals in the playoffs in the finals I would always root for the Bulls um I had a neighbor from Chicago so we would always unite behind watching Jordan's greatness which was pretty pretty fun and uh pretty easy you know because they, they yeah. pretty much uh with the exception of the year when Jordan uh retired and then when he came back uh in that year they lost i guess it was i want to say to them was it to the magic they lost in his first like yeah. abbreviated number 45 season but other than that um pretty easy rooting for the, the bulls in the playoffs so i i uh, again i i was younger then so i'm not going to say that i watched the game with the same sort of you know level of scrutiny that i do now but um you know i have no reason to to knock michael jordan i uh, again, I, I think of these things largely as era dependent. You know, there was sort of the Jordan era, and now we're in the LeBron era. And you know, I don't really care that much about what you say. Who you say is better all time because um, they were both just so incredible within their eras. But certainly, that performance in Game One from LeBron—I mean, I don't know—tough, tough to really kind of point to another playoff performance and say, "Oh, that was better." <laughs> you know, like, oh, that was—that was clearly a better playoff performance. I mean, the efficiency, the clutchness. Um, I mean, fifty-one, eight, and eight, right? I mean, by the way, it, it felt like it felt like he couldn't even dribble with his left hand most of the game. Like, how many times? Did, like, isn't that wasn't that crazy? Like, yeah, like as soon as he would go over, it would just like get loose. Yeah, yeah. He kept like his hand. His dribble seemed like really loose, but it didn't matter. And I'd I'd love to know. I'd have to check, but I'm curious how many of his how many of his baskets were assisted. 
because I remember him catching one. He he had one cut for a dunk. I remember. Yeah. Um. But for the most part, just him just going to work and just getting buckets and you know. And I think he had twenty three potential assists. They only got eight for him, but I think he had twenty three potential assists. Yeah, that's crazy. I mean, and that's the thing too. I mean, you know, like Jordan always had Pippen. You know, later years had Kukoc. They had Ron Harper. I mean, they had more kind of guys who had some playmaking ability around Jordan, too. So I mean, they didn't need Jordan to be maybe the playmaker that, that the Cavs need LeBron to be. But it really is crazy just how single-handedly everything has to be LeBron just willing them to to close to victory. So, um, yeah, I mean, it was, uh, I don't know, it was one of those games you just sort of sit around and say, man, I... I feel privileged to be able to watch this guy, you know, to that we were able to kind of watch him throughout his his prime and who knows how long that prime is going to last cuz certainly you watch him right now. Yeah. <laughs> Has he ever been better? I mean, I, I don't know. Tough to say. He's had better regular seasons, but I don't think he's ever been this good in the playoffs. Yeah, I mean, and like I said, I got just the fact that there were even takes in my timeline about like anything else other than holy shit, what did I just watch? Like that to me was the only takeaway from that night cuz it was it was incredible like there's just no other way to even think about it uh or at least in my eyes and kind of sounds like in your eyes as so, well so i'm happy so, you're, you supported my uh take of calling people losers that's a good thing so, so here's the question um i mean i thought lebron should have won the finals mvp the first time these teams met when i guess it was what iguodala won it which to me just seemed kind of stupid um like i, I would have put iguodala behind steph as well in that playoff series, I mean, it's just like it was very much a like, oh, you you exceeded expectations, so here's you know here's the award type thing, kind of like what yeah. I'd have to look. It reminded me a little bit of when Tony Parker won a Finals MVP over Duncan. It's like, come on, like nobody really thinks that Iguodala was more valuable than Steph, or nobody really thinks that Parker was more valuable than Duncan. But you know, it's like, oh, here here's the novelty. We're gonna give you this this award, um, but. Uh, I'm I'm actually curious. So here's a question: If if LeBron averages like 40 points per game in this finals, I mean, if they win one game, could he still win the, the finals MVP? I mean, well, I don't that, think we I don't think we've ever had a situation where a guy is more set up to lose a series and still potentially get the finals MVP. Well, because what Howard Beck on his most recent podcast with Zach Lowe said, him and Zach were two of the four people that voted for. Uh, LeBron for finals MVP in that year. And I think there's, I don't even know how many voters there are. I think in that, that many, yeah, I think it's like 11 ish, 12, somewhere in there. So, I mean, realistically you need three people to swing the other way. And then all of a sudden you have LeBron finals MVP. So I, I would assume again, I don't know who all the voters will be and I don't even know how that gets decided, but I would assume the four, if, and again, LeBron's not going to keep this pace. 51, 8, and 8 for the finals is not going to happen. But, I mean, realistically, he could score, what, 30 in the next four games and still average around 40 points? I'm trying to think. I'm bad at math, but um, he doesn't have to be incredible the next couple games. But, like, if he's around 40, LeBron efficiency with eight or nine rebounds and six or seven assists like isn't that definitely your finals mvp and i I agree like i just think they have to win one and i I think he can win it because i I would assume that voting block that had him last time would stay the same and then a couple people swing and i think also 
when you think about MVP awards and I guess just kind of awards in general, like it's all about the swinging narrative to me in that like maybe James Harden should have won an MVP last year. And now this year he's going to get that MVP. And you kind of just think through of like, it always feels like, or I shouldn't say always, but a lot of times it feels like voters can be making up for past injustices that they served out where, uh, man, we really should have got that guy an award this time. Well, let's, let's get it this time. I almost wonder if, I don't want to say there's guilt, but like there's some thought in their head. You know what? We probably should have gave him the finals MVP that first time when he was incredible against the Warriors. If he falls again, like maybe we should do it this time. So uh, I think, I think he's like you said, he's really well set up for it. And I think it's possible. I think if they, if they win one game, it's going to be really close because I don't know who's going to pull away for the Warriors. Like last year you had Durant hit that shot against LeBron and it was like, yep, there's your moment. There's your finals MVP. He's had a good enough series. He's been good enough offensively and defensively. Like, that's your guy is Steph going to be able to have a finals moment because I don't know if they just give it to Durant just to give it to Durant this year I think they would uh, I think the narrative would hopefully swing to Steph but I don't know if he he gets enough touches anymore because it seems like anytime he heats up Katie's like oh I want to heat up too this seems like fun um and then he doesn't get to have the like length of those moments so I think he's uh, I guess there's probably some part of me that's hopeful that it happens because I, I almost think there would be few things more appropriate for LeBron James than being the only player in modern NBA history. Cause what it was Jerry West was the last one to get it in a losing effort in the finals. Like he'd be the only one in modern NBA history uh, to get a finals MVP in a losing effort. Like wouldn't that be the perfect kind of like the perfect award and, perfect summation of LeBron's career yeah well especially you know we know he's not going to win the MVP um or at least you know like that that's obviously I think pretty pretty understood that that Harden's gonna win that and so um you know I feel like this would be the appropriate way to recognize his playoff dominance and again would you I I think the I think it should be a playoff I, I forget where they were talking about this if it was on low post or the jump or what um but like I know Rachel Nichols has been big on like this idea of there should be like a like a best player award. Oh, I and hate it so much. I, I, I don't. I don't. Yeah, I, so I don't agree stupid. with that either. Because then it's like, well, do we even need to have a season for that nope. award? It's like what you were talking about with the All NBA stuff. You know, um, I, I agree. I, I think MVP is it's a regular season award. But then maybe to mirror that, maybe there is a playoff award um, where it's for the all for the entirety of the playoffs, and it's not just Finals MVP, and it's just a playoffs MVP, which is kind of I. If I remember correctly, I used to be a big hockey fan. I think the Conn Smythe is for the entire Correct. playoffs um, in the NHL. So I kind of like that idea. Um, also, who I, I set think, up the NBA award show? Is That's the NBA PA, right? No, no. Now it's the NBA. The okay. NBA PA had that like one, like two years ago. They, they started yeah. their own awards thing. And then the NBA was like, all right, screw you guys. We're just going to have an award show. Okay, so whoever um, is doing it, you know what? You don't all get to be in the same place. You're going to have to do it during, with video conferences. It's the day after the season ends. Yeah. Period. Like, just stop pushing this all the way until after the actual season because people can only get upset in that situation, right? And also, you get like you don't get to have that moment, right? Like, there's always been that moment in a first round playoff series where the MVP winner gets to get the trophy in front of their home crowd 
And like, that's a moment. Like that's a thing people legitimately look forward to and want to celebrate with their player. And you're taking that away because you've decided that, well, it has to be after everything because we want players to show up. And then most of them, or I shouldn't say most of them, then some of them don't even show up and you just have this silly award show that no one cares about. Yeah, I mean, if we're going to do a best player, then let's not, let's embrace sort of the strangeness and not normalcy of it. And let's make it, let's make it like the, the championship belt. All right, let's just make it a belt. <laughs> we'll, we'll, you know, we could call it an NBA PA award or something. Yeah. Uh, but literally, LeBron gets a championship belt. You know, what it was Rashid did Rashid and the yep. Pistons? They have the, they made championship belts for themselves after they beat uh, the Lakers, I think. Um, so we'll we'll give LeBron a belt, and then he can literally wear that as long as he's the. <laughs> M- I mean, that would be that would at least be funny. Yeah. Um, and be a little bit different because again, I think sort of having a an award that is for best player that's different from best season to me that's just such a i still feel like that's too abstract on some level Mm -hmm. um because again it's like nobody's gonna look back on these years and be like oh like you you had to be there to know how awesome lebron james was i think we're gonna know (laughs) that lebron was awesome you know um i think we're gonna know that but anyway Should we switch over to? Uh, we don't have much Bucks content these days. We're obviously going to waiting draft stuff. We're going to do more draft stuff. You talked about stuff on Friday. We're going to do more draft things this week. Um, but we had over unders at the beginning of the season. We did a mid season. I think it was in January. We did kind of a mid season check in. Um, but I figured now that the season was over, we, we could have done this the day after the season, I guess. But um, now that we're really hard up for content, why don't we look at the over unders we did preseason and we'll figure out how we did. And you guys can score at home and see how you did. And, um, you know, you guys can all tell us that, that you got them all right. I'm uh, really waiting though. for someone to pull out that sheet of paper. Like, as soon as they yeah. hear us say this, like, oh, yes, let me go get my over-under sheet. I, I, I filled them all out with you guys. <laughs> I'm really waiting for that. Yeah, let's see some timestamps on that. Um, <laughs> all right, so let's go through these quickly. So the first one was Giannis over 25 points per game. Early in the season, this felt ridiculous because Giannis was, you know, threatening 30 points a game in the first few weeks of the yeah. season. Uh, obviously, he came back down to earth. In January, we we re-racked uh, and said we, we re-racked to an over-under of 27 and a half. Uh, I said under. I think you said over. He ends up at 26.9. Um, I think I said at the time I predicted he'd end up at 27.2. I wish I was... Well, I guess I wish I was right because he ended up at 26.9, but obviously That's his numbers continued to continue to kind of diminish as the season went on. But we were both correct on the original over-under. Um, so without getting too deep into this one, what it, what would you put their over-under for next year? We'll, we'll do this properly at the start of next season, but you know, mm. not knowing anything about what else happens this Bucks summer, if you had to put an over-under number on next season, 18-19 Giannis, where would you put it? Man, I really wish I could... I'm not I'm not going to waste our time by looking up what the highest points per game total in uh, a Mike Budenholzer season is, but I just feel like they use... Well, why, but that's irrelevant, right? Because, I mean, there's never been a... Paul Millsap, Al Horford, those guys don't matter, right? What, what do those guys matter? Well, I mean, I, th- I think there's, at least in my opinion, um, I have some questions about how he'll be used and whether it'll just be system basketball and how many Giannis specific looks will be there um, because I don't know that that's something Mike Boonholz has ever done before. I think he will do a lot of that this year um, and he will find ways to work outside of the system to get Giannis those looks um, and they'll be very Giannis centric but uh, I 
do have some questions about how they'll kind of get to that because uh, that kind of goes against, I think, his ethos as a coach. Like, all of the Hawks University and developing wing stuff happens because he gives those guys those opportunities. And, well, can that happen if Tony Snell isn't getting any more opportunities to do those things? Or, you know what I mean? Like, I think there is some question, um, at least in my mind, about how all of that will work with a supernova star uh, in Giannis. So I, I'm, I'll be curious to see how that goes. Um, but overall, I was just trying to figure out how much higher that number should be. Maybe 28? Um, I don't know if I feel comfortable going much higher than that. Yeah, I was actually going to say maybe the same, 27. Um, so ironically, I'm I'm kind of going ending it the same. Even though I was just questioning your logic, I'll actually go maybe even lower than you did. Um, and this kind of gets back to something that I, I said, kind of giving sort of to a similar point. Just of, I don't know if the way that you take this team to the next level is just by having Giannis score more points. Um, I think you obviously need to maximize Giannis, but I think a lot of that is like I feel there's a much more there's much higher likelihood of Giannis upping his assists than upping his points per game next year i would say mm. that right like i think the odds of Giannis scoring yeah, getting six assists per game are higher than Giannis getting 28 or 29 points per game maybe Interesting. um and i i mean i ideally he would do both i mean he's so efficient <laughs> yeah. like you know you would hope his usage would be higher you hope his his playmaking would be more weaponized you hope that guys would make more shots because you'd have a better offense around him um but i think you know again maybe it would be expressed more in some of his peripheral stats rather than just through his scoring but anyway um all right, next over under, Giannis 3.5 MVP finish. By this, we mean that Giannis would finish either top three would be basically the over, uh, top four or worse would be uh, the under. And so we haven't had the MVP award as we were discussing, but uh, we do know Giannis is not a finalist. So technically, we know the answer to this. He is outside of the top three. Uh, you were the Giannis believer. I, I hate to be on the opposite side of Giannis in anything, as we've discussed many times. <laughs> Betting against Giannis is never a good idea. Um, I did in this case, and I actually was <laughs> rewarded. I wish I wasn't, um, but I said worse. I just didn't think he was going to be able to crack the top three. Uh, you were the optimist, said three. And honestly, for much of the season, he was right there. I, I think yeah. I'm, I'm sure there will be a number of bounce. I think Zach Lowe was among those who said, you know, he was like third, I think, in his MVP ballot. We kind of lose. I think we maybe have lost sight of that a little bit just because of LeBron and everything he's done. But Regular season, LeBron didn't play defense. His team was pretty disappointed. Pretty disappointing. I mean, the Cavs really weren't that much better than the Bucks this season. Um, and obviously, Anthony Davis kind of needed that big kind of end of season push to sort of cement his status in the top three, or at least in the the award top three. So um, I don't think we were far off with this. I think this was a pretty good over under we set. Um, but again, maybe this year uh, didn't happen. But I don't know. I mean, I'm guessing you might you might feel pretty good taking a top three finish as your prediction for next year though. Right. I do. I feel yeah. quite good about that. Um, yeah. and also, I mean, I'm, I'm curious uh, just kind of in general, um, with, with the way that Jason Kidd pushed Giannis, not that Jason Kidd is a better motivator. Um, but just with the, uh, reckless abandon in which he would play Giannis, I'm curious if kid stays around, if Giannis ends up playing in 79 games instead of 75 games, and if he uh, gets the chance to do some 
put up some more crazy numbers uh, just because of it. And again, I don't know that the Bucks win any more games um, with Jason Kidd, but I am curious just from a purely uh, numbers-based standpoint if if he has better numbers with Jay Kidd instead of uh, Joe Prunty. It's an interesting question. I think I'm trying to think, did did Giannis have any off games? He he didn't have any any planned rest until the end of the season, right? When he got hurt, I guess, right? When he missed those three, what was it three games at the end yeah, of the season? Those final three. So uh, yeah, yeah, so I guess it'd yeah. be seventy eight instead of yeah eighty or seventy five. Excuse me. Yeah, yeah, I, it's a good question. Um, again, and again, like, like I think it's probably better for his long term health <laughs> that Joe Fronty right. came and uh, like immediately like the minutes went down and all that. But I am curious just because I, I mean I think we all know how Jason Kidd operated. Um, if he got the rest of the season with the Bucks, if Giannis is pushed harder um, and maybe less healthy <laughs> because of it. Uh, next one, Chris, twenty points per game. This was a fantastic over under that we set because Chris ends up at 21 20.1 points per game I, I'm going to give us credit for setting the over under to uh, distract from the fact that we both picked under uh, mm. so we both got that one wrong um, that was the only one that we both got wrong by the way I feel um, like we both said it was just going to be just barely right because yeah, the last yeah, time thought- Chris Giannis and Jabari were together he was at what 19.9 and I think that was no, kind he of- was at yeah, I think when they all played together, they were all at like nine, like eighteen point eight or eighteen point nine yeah. for that stretch post All Star fifteen sixteen. I think it was, mm-hmm. um, and what Chris was at something fifteen fifty or, or sorry eighteen right yeah. that, that year. So yeah, I thought he would score more this year than that. But again, I thought he would probably be just under, and I think that was. And I also felt that would play and you know, hurt his All Star candidacy, which obviously he, he didn't make the All Star game, but um, he was right there. And well, let me play the same question as as. Uh, as with Giannis, I mean, I'd say that's probably a pretty good over/under again for next year. Like, did, would you say otherwise? Do you think we're we may see Chris score even more next year? How do you, how do you view Chris's scoring and, and how that kind of fits into the big picture of the Bucks and the way they're going to be constructed? I feel like twenty is probably about right. Um, I think the one thing I'm curious about, and I think this is the next over/under we're about to get to, um, is this three-pointer attempt rate. Yeah. And uh, gotta go up. Gotta go up. <laughs> you assume it has to go up. Um, and you'd assume that, again, I, I referenced the Jim O'Brien, Kyle Korver moment over and over again, but I, I do wonder if Mike Boonholzer is the guy that tells Chris, like, hey, dude, you're super valuable. You're a great basketball player. I know that you can do all these other things, but along with doing all these other things, whether that's playmaking, getting into uh, the lane to create floaters and mid-range jumpers and alley-oop attempts for John Henson, like, Along with doing all that, you're also going to shoot seven threes a night, eight threes a night. Like, yeah, I, my hope is, and I guess my educated guess would be that he is that guy um, to do that and to give Chris those instructions. But again, we won't really see it. But if that does happen, if all of a sudden he's shooting seven threes a night instead of five threes per night, I think that just naturally helps out his... I mean, I think it should help out his his usage rate and it should help out his points per game. And even if his field goal attempts don't change all that much from 15.5 per game this year, if two twos are replaced with two threes, well, then he should average more than 20 points. But I think 20 is probably pretty close for points per game. Yeah, I, I think that's about right. I mean, you know, again, a lot of it probably also depends on Giannis and Chris both having such big workloads this year. 
Budenholzer has typically not played anybody crazy amount of minutes, but again, he also hasn't been and had teams that were as reliant on two guys as he as the Bucks have with them these two players. So it'll be interesting to see where those guys end up minutes wise. Because certainly, you know, if, if Chris plays thirty five minutes rather than thirty seven minutes, that's the kind of difference that can easily push you from below to above twenty. Um, so yeah, I think it's probably a pretty good number. Um, and yeah, the five I, I thought. As the season was going on, initially it looked like the five three three point attempts per game for Chris was like going to be an easy over. Mm-hmm. Um, we actually re-racked in mid-January to five point five as our revised over under, and he ended up going just at basically pushing just at five three pointers per game. So I guess we'll call that a push um, that we that we didn't get it wrong or right. But um, but yeah, I mean again that we've always sort of been exasperated even having to do this because we always felt like it just should be higher. Yeah. Um, and again, I think a big part of the Bucks kind of reaching a next level offensively is dependent on taking their three point shooters, Chris, Tony Snell, um, you know, to a lesser extent maybe Brogdon, uh, and and figuring out like can you get those guys more put them in more positions to to take advantage of of the skills they have. Um, that plays into as well. We had um, an over under. Uh, this was really a referendum on Chris Middleton making the All Star game. We had 1.5 bucks All Stars. We both took the under, um, and obviously the under was was one because um, Giannis made it. And Chris did not. Uh, I think we cited both Chris sort of being not a sexy name, the Bucks probably not being good enough, and just in general Middleton not having kind of that like overall profile to to get into that conversation. That's um, pretty much what happened, right? Like yeah, they went through four or five, or I, I, was it four alternates? I think. Um, and every single step of the way, it was like, Oh, you know, Chris should probably be in this conversation. It was like, no, nope. no, he's yeah. not. Okay. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. And it'll be interesting to see next year. I mean, again, I think, I think if the bucks, you know, so much of this to me is going to come down to do the bucks kind of come out, winning a lot of games are they on pace for 50 wins um if so is it like a big like oh mike budenholzer has turned this team around and blah blah blah. if that's the case then i think there's a much better likelihood of getting that second all-star berth um but again it's it's really hard to get two all-stars from a team that isn't considered a really good a really good team yep. um because if if you you know again like it, it, to get that you generally have to have guys who are really big names or putting up huge numbers or whatever and chris obviously He's not a guy who's going to get a lot of hype. Doesn't maybe play the spectacular game that's going to draw that level of uh, of appeal. Although again, the reserves are picked by the coaches, so I thought it was interesting that Chris also didn't really seem to get the love from the coaches, since I think Adam Silver was pretty much just going down the coaches' voting list when he was doing all those reserves. So um, it'll be interesting to see. I mean, a couple other things to factor in. I mean, Chris Stapps is going to be out the beginning of the season, so he's a guy who's not going to be in the all-star mix again next year. We'll see if anybody else sort of injuries, maybe play a factor. We'll see, you know, guys like Kemba, do they, you know, if their teams turn around, then certainly that will help them kind of get into the conversation sooner. I mean, but um, again, we'll, we'll see. I'd probably say 1.5 is a pretty safe bet again. And um, again, I can't say I'm expecting Chris Middleton to be an all-star next year, but who knows, right? I think certainly yeah. be a, not certainly not a bad sign for the bucks. If, uh, if he does make it, um, this next one, I don't think we need to spend much time on it. Way back yonder in the days of the the 2017-18 preseason, people were really excited about Thon Maker, maybe a little bit of deja vu this this summer. Um, yep. And we put the over-under of his minutes at 24 minutes per game. Oof. We thought, we thought he was going to start. Line. We thought he was going to start. Uh, we both took the under. I think we both thought he was going to be closer to like 20 minutes per game. Ended up being way under that, 16.7 
And I think, I don't know, like, where would you put that number going into next season? Oh, wow. Um, man, I have no idea. Um, especially just because you don't really know what Budenholzer's system is. Um, if I felt more confident that Budenholzer was interested in running a switch-heavy system, I think you could maybe think about, again, bumping that number to 20, 22, somewhere in there. Um, but until I know that, I don't know how, how much he can kind of factor into all of that. Yeah. I'd say maybe 20, 20 minutes per game might yeah. be my, my thing. Just because again, even if Thon, even if we get playoff Thon more reliably, um, you know, John Henson is still on this team for the time being. I, I don't know how much they're going to play him just cause he's, <laughs> just cause he's there. Uh, and we also don't know. You know, does Giannis get used more at center? That that's obviously a big question. I think a lot of us, you know, in our dream scenario, Thon and Giannis play tons of minutes. You dump Tenson or something like that. Um, Tony Snell, forty percent threes. What a terrific line, Eric. Forty point three percent. You took the over. I took the under. And um, yeah, I I paid for. I, I'm sure. I, I bet a lot of Bucks fans w- would be shocked. Maybe not our listeners, but. A lot of regular Bucks fans would probably be shocked. If you just paid attention to Twitter, you'd think Tony Snell shot like 30% this year or something. Um, But he did shoot 40.3%. Was a lot more consistent, I think, than maybe people realize. But uh, again, he was was right there. Would have been nice to see more of that in the playoffs, but um, certainly he's a guy that you hope will uh, will maybe be one of the guys that that gets utilized more effectively under Mike Budenholzer. And I don't know, 40%, maybe that's that's a reasonable number for, for next year's over under as well. Yeah, I mean, you look at last year, 40.6 on 4.4 attempts. This year, 40.3 on 3.6 attempts uh, per game. So, I mean, I think that would be, I mean, if if the rules of Hawks University still exist in Milwaukee under Mike Boonholzer, I feel like Tony Snell is very much uh, the typical kind of wing player that Mike Boonholzer is able to get a lot out of. Um, so we'll see if that happens again. And I think another thing with Tony Snell, I think you can you can kind of see from the last two years here in Milwaukee is it is vital for him to feel as though people believe in him. Like there's, uh, a, I think, a level to, or I think there's something to his spirit and just kind of, uh, I just remember at the end of last season during exit interviews, him talking about just how thankful he was to be in a place where everyone believed in him and how much that meant to him and all of that. And I just think in the playoffs, you saw him not getting run. You saw him just not generally being trusted. And I think if you're Mike Budenholzer, you kind of have to recognize that and try to feed into that confidence and try to get the absolute most out of Tony Snell. Because as you said, you know the Bucks are going to need wings, wings that can play and wings that can make plays, uh, and wings that can hit threes and wings that can defend. So they need that uh, from Tony Snell next year. So we'll see if he has it. Yeah, remarkably, I mean, we've talked about this. That Tony Snell's usage has gone down every season he's been in the NBA, which is incredible for a guy who didn't use the ball much <laughs> yeah. ever. Uh, but in his in his five seasons thus far, here's his usage from from his rookie year in Chicago through last year: fourteen point nine percent. 12.1% in his first season in Milwaukee, 10.6% in uh, last year uh, in Milwaukee. I mean, it's almost impossible to be on the floor uh, and and to have a lower percentage when 
I mean, when Tony's open, he generally shoots. Uh, and to be know, clear, though, year, it's also ideal. Like if you're going to have high usage guys in Giannis and Chris and presumably your point guard, uh, like you need some low usage guys on the roster. And if the low usage is going to be shooting open threes when I touch it, that's a pretty good form of low yeah. usage. Yeah, and I mean, again, this is one of the challenging things when we talk about the draft as well. How do you guys transition like from being higher usage guys in college who shoot well to guys who come out and play 10 to 15 minutes, especially early on? Can yeah. they make two out of five shots from three? Can they come out and, and not go one for five more often than they go three for five? You know, it's it's a difficult skill. And I mean, again, like I don't want to be overly rosy on, on what Tony Snell has given because I think certainly you, you wished he would have given a little bit more last year. But um you know, again, like he shot 44% on corner threes last year, career high, 40.3%, uh, basically the same number as his previous year overall on threes. Uh, long twos, he shot 45% last year that tied his career or 1% below his career best, which he had as a rookie. Um, and overall, uh, you know, really the biggest difference between the previous year and, the, and last year was his two-point percentage. His two-point percentage uh, in his first year in Milwaukee, 55%. That was a career high, 49% last year. And again, he doesn't shoot many twos. So, um, you know, he, he, threes make up um, 60, almost two-thirds of his shots. So the twos don't matter as much. But when you t- take so few shots, you know, every every type of shot matters so um again it'll be interesting kind of how that how that changes and and evolves and you know when you were talking about like mikhail bridges for instance i thought again i don't know that much about mikhail bridges like as like a taller three and d ish type guy i mean is he really dynamic enough to be a guy that is more trevor reza or is he more tony snell and um i I don't know I, i think that's one of those things like getting a lot of shots up i mean that that's a skill in and of itself Moving on, <laughs> DJ, well, this was your worst call. Um, although, in fairness, I don't know if any of us could have predicted how bad DJ Wilson or how irrelevant DJ Wilson was going to be last year. Um, we picked 935 minutes for DJ Wilson last year. I think that was, um, I guess, what was that? Fawn's minutes from the previous year? Rashad Vaughn's like from Rashad, his first Rashad. rookie season. Because we were looking for oh, yeah, the yeah, worst right. possible rookie. Because we did not believe in DJ Wilson that much. And we tried to figure out a line where, okay, well, this guy was still actively terrible during his rookie season uh but managed to play this many minutes yeah or you know i think it may have been rashad vaughn the previous year because rashad had or no rashad had a thousand one minutes as a rookie oh, 458, 458 last was. year so we'd have to figure i don't even know what who, who we had for the, the but anyway uh dj wilson yeah uh i took the under i had no idea he was going to be this bad he ends up at uh Wait, was he really at fifty-two? Yeah, I think in January he was at fifty-two minutes for the entire for the entire season. Um, uh, let me let me just double check here to Ooh, see. If he nine actually... thirty-five was Beasley. Oh, Beasley. Oh, that's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Um, so so the question was, did uh, did uh, did DJ Wilson crack a hundred minutes? Now, without looking, I'm, I have the number in front of me. Did DJ Wilson crack a hundred minutes last year? I can't imagine. Seventy-one minutes in twenty-two games. I think this is where I call BS, Frank, because we're not including G League games. And <laughs> if we come, no, I still don't think he gets to 935, even if we include yeah. G League games, if I'm being totally honest. The, the irony was because he played so few, he actually was like not 
horrendous in in the few minutes he played which is totally irrelevant obviously but he had his true shooting percentage of 62 percent in those 71 minutes which again i don't know if anybody should care about that but um (laughs) he at least wasn't completely unable to make shots in his garbage time uh he he made 40 percent of his threes last year guys so hey uh let's let's just scale that up to you know greater than 71 minutes um but yeah i i think huge questions about dj wilson and again i think a lot of it goes back to just i mean it says a lot that nobody even like even when the Bucks literally like I think about that game in Phoenix early in the season where Giannis sat out. Yep. They literally had no power forwards active in that game because Toledovich was hurt as well. Yep. And DJ Wilson, I don't think played a minute. Um, that I think spoke volumes just about how much the coaching staff just had no belief that he could come in and help them. And uh, he didn't play well in the G League. I mean, he had some games where he put up raw numbers, but you know he was always like a huge minus guy for the herd. And overall, I'm I'm just fascinated to see if he gets his third year option picked up. That that has to happen by the end of this October, and I think we'll know a lot about what the internal view of DJ Wilson is at that point. Because if they decide not to pick up his third year option, which again is that's a big deal, because again that that could dramatically impact not dramatically but you know he's owed what let's see uh almost three million in the 1920 season if they decline that that could have you know again depending on what they do this summer that could have a very real effect on their flexibility in the summer of 2019 and um again like have you seen anything from dj wilson to feel like you know that that he's going to be a value at that number i I don't know do you think there's a draft night trade with dj wilson i guess i mean here's the thing like does anybody like does anybody give up anything of value for G? I mean, he could be a throw-in for sure, um, like a salary matching guy. But do people even like second like, rounder? You, I don't even know. Maybe maybe there's some. I mean, there might be some team out there that liked him last year that would say, you know, like like if the Nets liked him or something, like you know, throw a second rounder at him, just you know, roll the dice. Um, just but, be, the only reason I ask is because I believe John Hammond traded. He traded Joe Alexander the next year, right? Yeah, that was in the John Salmons trade. He was like a throw-in. They they declined his third-year option, and then he was included in the um, oh, yeah, yeah. in the John Salmons trade. Yeah, so and the, he never the, he never played for the Bucks after that first year. So the only that's the only reason I was thinking like, does John Horst in a way learn something from his predecessor, and then also uh, maybe <laughs> maybe get nudged by Mike Boonholzer to cut bait and decide yeah. on you know. If, because I mean, I uh, it was funny. I was doing the uh, mock draft thing with uh, with Sager Tricka and on Twitter, and we were having some fun with that. And I was the GM of the Bucks, and I had thrown that out in the group chat, like, "Hey, there's a DJ Wilson available in the second round," because I was trying to buy second rounders, and everyone's like, nah, "No, I'm okay," which what totally fair. Um, but I, I uh, we need to we need to talk about some of those trades because I thought they were interesting um, that you made in that just because I think they're, they're they get to some interesting questions I, about what the Bucks should be doing. But I, let's let's save that. I was gonna say I think that we're gonna have like a piece that comes out and explains kind of everything that happened in it and everyone's rationale. So when that does, that's the day we'll talk about it. Okay, um, keep it going. Okay, Sterling Brown over under. We had him at four hundred fifty eight minutes. That was I guess Rashad Vaughn's minutes last year. So basically, could he uh, eat? Uh, drink Rashad Vaughn's milkshake this year uh, he did Rashad Vaughn was gone by the end of the season Sterling was at 776 minutes so we both took the over and were correct on that um, 
I don't know if I have anything really to add. I just say Sterling Brown is another one of those guys who, along with Tony Snell, might be the kind of prime candidates for. We need to come up with something better than Bucks University. Agreed. Um, I, I don't know what uh, we. That, that's for for all our Twitter friends out there. Tweet at us some better plays on words or something for for what the Bucks equivalent of Hawks University could be. But um, certainly, he's a guy that uh, again, I think. You know, when you think about the levers to make the Bucks better next year, Sterling Brown becoming a really useful kind of two-way wing who is a three and D guy, and and you know, if nothing else, gives Tony Snell a run for for some minutes, but also, you know, again with uncertainty around Jabari Parker's role, they're not like necessarily interchangeable positionally, but um, again, you know, that is a big question: could you get value by getting Sterling Brown just growing into a bigger role um, on that wing in that wing rotation? Yeah, and uh, I mean, I think both of us qualify as hashtag Sterling stands. If uh, if I still, if we can both still say that, I think we both are still there. I'm a believer in Sterling Brown's talent and in what he can do, and he's got a little MF in him. And I think those are the kind of guys you need to mix it up. And we talked about again and again throughout this postseason, just the idea that you need wings and you need a whole bunch of them, and you need to be able to play them uh, throughout the season and the postseason. And um, I do think Sterling Brown has some of that potential because he can do a, a number of different things. Uh, he, I think he shows a little bit more creativity off the bounce than maybe people thought he did. Um, obviously, he can catch and shoot. And to me, the big thing is him figuring out exactly the moments he needs to do it. I think that was his bigger, biggest problem this year was there was times when he should have been catching and shooting and he was putting it on the deck and then all the times he put it on the deck when he should be catching and shooting. It, it felt more like he was guessing. Like, oh, last time they ran me off the line, so this time they're going to do that again and then he'd be dribbling and they'd be five feet away. So I think it, the game might have been a little bit fast for him this year, but uh, it'll be interesting to see what he looks like in year two. One of Sterling's probably biggest issues from an efficiency standpoint this year was probably uh, short shots. Uh, zero to three feet this year. Um, you know, 27% of his shots came at the rim. Only 52.7%. You have to be better when you're that close to the rim if you're a guy who I think, you know, is as tall, as strong as he is. I think he had like a few like sneaky explosive dunks, but for the most part, he was a guy that struggled to finish at the rim this year. I think certainly that's part of the storyline for why he wasn't a higher draft pick as well. Just, you know, again, does he have the skill level uh, and burst to, to really be an effective finisher at the rim? I think he's got to be better than 53%. Um, three to 10 feet, only 25%. Obviously, you know, that's a, a weird area of the court in general, but um, he's got to be better there. Uh, you know, Tony Snell, 65% at the rim this year. I think he was 69% last year. And again, a lot of it's, I think Tony Snell was getting a lot more of those off like cuts and, you yeah. know, situation where he didn't he wasn't driving the ball i think a lot more sterling's attempts at the rim were coming on uncontested plays or sorry unassisted plays um but he's got to get better there because overall 43.9 percent on twos for for sterling brown that is a, a major area where he can improve um because again at three pointers he was at 35 percent not bad for you know a rookie adjusting to the new three-point line long twos 36 percent again not great but not bad um but again, both areas I think you'd expect him to improve. But again, if he can become more efficient, getting the rim, you know, picking his spots, that's going to be helpful. Because overall, you know, 56% of his shots were twos this year. So he didn't have that like really stark three-point heavy sort of shot distribution, which I think, again, shifting more of his shots to catch and shoot threes, um, I think that would help. Um, I think like a lot of rookies, he seemed to be interested in kind of taking that dribble in and taking that shorter shot, which um, again, in the NBA nowadays, you know, 
take a sidestep uh, to make sure you can hit you to get up to get up those threes. Um, I don't. I don't know. I, I should say I know this isn't how it works. Um, but I just wish he could go to the Malcolm Brogdon school of finishing, um, where no matter what, if Brogdon gets the rim, one Brogdon always seems to make the right decision. Um, I, there's, I think there's times where I wish you'd have a little bit more willing trigger from the three point line, but I, I think largely he makes the right decision between, uh, passing and shooting. And then once he gets to the rim, he's just so creative there and he's so crafty and he uses so much of the glass that, um, maybe, if Sterling doesn't quite have the doesn't quite have the vertical and the because he does have a good vertical though, but I don't know. Like if he just can't find a way to turn those into dunks, like you got to find a way to be creative around the rim, and uh, hopefully he's able to pick up some of those tricks in year two. Yeah, and that was an area where Brogdon actually got a lot better. You know, I mean, you think about him and um, the number of sort of crafty up and under, you know, you know, left-handed banks using the rim as, as a protection to, to get off shots. You know, Malcolm went from 56% at the rim as a rookie to 66% this past season. Yep. So even though his three point percentage dropped a couple percent from 40% to just under 39%, um, you know, obviously the fact that he continued to, to, finish and and do so at a higher level is why he was able to boost his overall true shooting percentage from 55.5 to 57.8 percent so again it's you know distribution both both malcolm malcolm's even heavier two-point dependent than um than sterling is and i think a lot of he's obviously i'd say a more you know more skilled ball handler for sure so you you would expect sterling should be heavier on the three-point attempts um but again you know i think Malcolm's a good guy to watch in terms of having kind of like a thicker, you know, stronger body, but using kind of craft, even though both guys can have those sneaky dunks. I think both guys, you know, again, have to use a, a lot more guile than, than maybe, you know, certainly a guy like Giannis or something like yeah. that. So, um, definitely areas of improvement. Um, Bucks defense before the season, we, we said 10th and a lot of that was basically as a challenge to the Bucks. We both said worse. <laughs> um, uh, in January, they were 24th. We re-racked and said 20th. Um, I said they, they would be better it. than 20s. <laughs> yeah, you said worse, um, but th- that's that doesn't count in our overall sort of ledger here. But but for the record, I, I said they would be a little bit better. They ended up being 19th. I think Dean, our friend Dean Mania, was the first person to point out to us. You know, there was a chance, given the way things were stacking up, that they could actually get into the, the mid to high teens, just because there was kind of a a lot of teams kind of packed together there. And with Kid leaving, you know, hopefully they were going to get better. They did get better. Got to 19th at the end of the season, so not a, obviously a huge improvement. But um, I know, again, sadly, no shock to us that the Bucks were not a great defensive team. But I, again, I'll ask you, you know, right now, not knowing how this roster might change over the summer or how Mike Budenholzer, what his system might ex- exactly look like, um, where, where would you put that over-under going into next year? 10th. I think we've talked about just the the talented individuals that they have on this roster um and we've talked about kind of the skills that they should be able to possess and the ways in which they should be able to become a strong defense and they just failed to do that in the last few years under Jason Kidd I think with a more capable coach and Mike Budenholzer um with that talent I think there might be some growing pains early as uh they try to take out some of their old habits uh just because uh, i think the only way you can really do that is game reps and i think you'll you'll have to have some struggles and some growing pains in the first 10 to 20 games but after that i think they should be i think they should start clicking and i would say a top 10 defense yeah i think if i mean if they finish like 18th or something like that next year then i think 
you have to start wondering really about like okay we're we're, we're just over overrating the personnel to some extent yeah. unless again like Budenholzer's scheme is like too much too aggressive and and not you know progressive enough um but yeah i think you have to see improvements this year again i don't know if top 10 oh god this team should be so much better defensively yeah let's keep it at 10th um <laughs> Part of the ingredients, so one area where they did get a lot better this past season uh, was in terms of cutting down attempts at the three-point line. This is an area where I think Mike Budenholzer teams have, have actually not done well. Yeah. Um, but corner threes in particular, um, lat, we set the corner threes allowed per 100. Or we, I think what we're using for the stats here, just because it's harder to find the per 100 numbers, is just per game since that's close to per 100 possessions. Um, last year, we, it was, what, above eight? This year we said, can it be below eight? Um, and we both took the under. We thought there'd be improvement, and there was a lot of improvement. They actually only only allowed 6.2 uh, corner threes per game, so a lot of improvement there. And again, kind of ironic that you know Jason Kidd, the kind of the whack-a-mole problem, Jason Kidd's defense actually managed to cut down on some of those things that that hurt them so much in previous years. But you know, again, just hemorrhaging points at the rim and and not being able to you know basically um, kind of do the other things you know the watching walking while chewing gum type problem um unfortunately didn't net them into a better place overall but they did improve in terms of the line corner threes yeah and it's funny to think about like how all of that uh, just the shot distribution of their defense and you look at the ratings for how many shots they gave up at the rim and it's something they've been terrible at um over the years and somehow they managed to be worse this year and they just hemorrhage points at the rim. And I think if there's one thing you're really thinking about as you kind of go through this and figure out exactly uh, how you become a better defense, I think the big thing to me is finding a way for Giannis to be around the rim more and help deter rim attempts. Like uh, to me, that's the big thing. Like, how do you keep people away from the rim if you're going to be problematic at the three-point line and give up a, a number of them as Mike Budenholzer's defense have done in the past? You have to find a way to stop shots at the rim. And I think Giannis has to be a big part of that. Uh, and I think the big thing there would be finding a way to actually keep him around the rim. And it was something that Mike Budenholzer sort of mentioned uh, during his uh, introductory press conference or the little media scrum after he had said, you know, when you were playing against Giannis, you were doing your best to find a way to get him away from your action. Like you were trying to get Giannis away from your action. And that's why he was such a nightmare is he's just always in the mix of it. So I think that's the big thing is how do you keep Giannis in the middle of all of it defensively and not let him get away from the basketball? Yeah, we'll see. I mean, there's a lot of levers to improve here, but again, you know, defense, as we've seen, I mean, there's not, there is not one way to be good defensively, Correct. but, um, you know, and I think certainly the, the Hawks have been a good example of that, but, um, you know, again, like being at least okay defending the three point line is generally a pretty important part of it. So we'll see how that uh, evolves moving forward. Um, another number we don't often talk about like home wins versus road wins, but, um, I, I had said after the Bucks finished three straight years with 23, uh, 23 and 18 record at home, I said, if the Bucks want to get close to 50 wins, they need to get into that higher upper 20s number in terms of home wins. They improved this year going from 23 to 25 uh, home wins, but again, fell short of 28, which is really kind of what you need to get to in my mind. You basically 
you win 28, go 28 and 13 at home. Um, and then if you can go, you know, let's say around 500, if you can win 20, 21 games at, on the road, then that puts you into the upper 40s in terms of wins. Didn't happen this year. Uh, obviously, next year you hope that they can get can get closer to that. And kind of a similar like you know number split thing. Um, we talked about the amount of wins they were in against the West. We put the over under at 14 and a half um, out of 30 games. So basically, could they go 500 or better against the West? I think they were surprisingly decent, if I remember correctly, the year before last. Um, and this year they were even better, 17 and 13. We both picked the over um, as well there. So kind of interesting. We both got those two right. Um, I don't know. Any thoughts on those uh, kind of split, win split numbers? Um, I struggle still to find, uh, any sort of predictive value in any of it. Um, when we tried to predict it before the season, it was kind of just guessing for me. Um, so, uh, I agree that, you know, you do have to win games against the Western conference and, uh, you do have to find a way to make your home court meaningful. Um, but I think the larger kind of lesson is when the games that you're supposed to win, like, don't lose to the Orlando Magic. Like, like that's that's just generally, uh, I think, a strong policy. So, um, uh, to me, the bigger overarching idea is how do you find a better, uh, how do you find a way to be better against the the teams that you're supposed to beat? And I think of kind of Brad Stevens Celtics. I, I think the other year, not this year, but the year previous, and maybe even in this year, like they just don't lose to bad teams. Like they find a way to beat bad teams and i think if you're the bucks you have to find a way yeah i think in particular you know the home stuff i I would like to do it just because again i think it's it's just you know next year moving to a new building it would just be great if you can develop that better atmosphere you know uh, playing in front of your home crowd we've seen that when things are going well for the bucks the crowds are incredible especially in the playoffs um i agree like the west thing is just a little bit weird but we kind of saw it too i mean breaking down tiebreakers and stuff i mean there were a number of scenarios where the bucks because of conference record you know, could have potentially lost out on tiebreakers um, against other East teams. And so it's, it's just some of those weird things, right? That, that they were better against the West than the East. They won 57% of their games against the West and only 53.6% overall. So just kind of strange. Um, and the last number was the wins number preseason. It was 47 and a half. I took the under, you took the over, although I, I don't think you had them as winning many more games than that. Yeah. Yeah, you had him at 48. So you were going for a narrow window there. Um, I was saying 45, 46. Obviously ended up at 44. Where do you think the over... I mean, I know we've talked about the expectation should be that you get 50 wins, but if you were putting this as an over-under, is the over-under 50 wins, or is it more just like, hey, that should be the goal? I think it's probably 48 and a half. I think it was 46 and a half this year, 47 and a half. I don't know, my memory is failing me right now, but... I just think when you look at this team, you look at Giannis' season, you look at not Jason Kidd as the head coach, <laughs> I I would struggle to put that number much lower. I guess maybe since it's a betting line and you want action on each side, um, maybe it has to be 48.5 because I think if it's much lower than that, all of the gambling action goes to the over uh, just because I think a lot of people believe that is going to be better next year um so i guess probably 48 and a half is probably my number yeah i think from a betting side that's probably pretty reasonable um 
And again, I think probably among Bucks fans, we probably get a lot of overs from maybe maybe people who are not Bucks fans. <laughs> you take some unders. Um, but again, I think certainly uh, an over on that line would would not be unreasonable. But but then again, you know, you look at scenarios. I mean, if Giannis or Chris gets injured for any extended period of time, obviously then you'd probably say under. Um, and and yeah. although obviously all those potential scenarios, even though you don't want to think about them, do do kind of play into it. So anyway, I think the final the final numbers, if I aggregate it up. Um, I think we had uh, 14 over-unders. Um, I had, I was wrong on two of them. You were wrong on four of them. Wow. We pushed on one of them. Um, so I am the smartest person in the world, I think, That's is the, true. Yeah. the, uh, the takeaway, except for uh, whoever was going to tweet at us and tell us that they were right on all of them. So, um, <laughs> so somebody, I'm sure, got all of those right. Maybe we were... Um, you know, I, I'm sure you wish you had back your DJ Wilson over uh, on minutes. Um, no, you know what? I'm I'm actually totally okay with it. Um, okay. I I feel like it, I the research that I did. Um, you know, just the fact that he played kid played Rashad Vaughn a thousand minutes his rookie year, despite him being totally useless. Their need for uh, minutes at the forward spot or at the forward spots. I'm okay with it. Uh, how I arrived yeah. at that decision, I'm okay with. I mean, it is pretty ridiculous that DJ Wilson, with his team basically not having any players other than Giannis at that position, and then obviously Jabari eventually came back, but in spite of just a complete wide-open opportunity with positionally for, for to get minutes that he managed a whopping 71. I mean, that's just an incredible statement about his yes. irrelevance this season. Um, I also feel pretty damn good because the two that I missed were – I was under on Chris's 20.1 points per game. Missed that by 0.2. Yep. And then Tony Snell was 40.3%. I said he was going to be under on 40%. So I feel pretty damn good about that. But yeah. um, again, the over/under. I uh, by no by no stretch should I then take this as an indication that I should go gamble because I'm 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 useless also, in that regard. Also, you're so, going to need to find someone that takes very bucks specific Very specific bucks specs. <laughs> I need all of your bucks prop bets, please. Thank yeah, you. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. All right. All that, right. That's going to be it for us for today. Uh, we just got done right before game two is about to tip off. So we got about 50 minutes until game time there. We snuck it in. Uh, hopefully all of our fawning over LeBron and his, the possibility of him winning the finals MVP doesn't look stupid after game two, but it very well might. Uh, but actually, if Frank thought it, I feel like it should come true now because he, he does seem very good at predictions. So uh, we'll see you guys tomorrow uh we're gonna we're strategizing our plan for the draft coverage that we're gonna do um so maybe we'll have some details for you 